Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here. For those of you watching online or catching this on replay, we're glad that you would tune in as well. Today, if you're a guest with us, you could not have picked a better day to come check us out. We are kicking off a brand new uh, teaching series that's going to go for an undetermined amount of time. We'll see. Uh, I keep liking what I'm talking about and writing about, so it might go longer than what I originally planned. But the series title is called The Time of Your Life. The Time uh, of your life, and whether that makes you think of a Green Day song or uh, the uh, Dirty Dancing, is that what it was? Uh, anyways, uh, it's kind of reflective of probably your age and your upbringing, uh, which, whichever song came to your mind when you said that thing. But um, we are going to start by reading through a passage from Ecclesiastes today. I'm going to read the verse, and then we're going to go break it down verse by verse, and then talk about some applications. So that's the three-step process for today, just in terms of where we're headed. Um, but before we do, Ecclesiastes, if you're not familiar with the book, and you find yourself to be a millennial. It is the most millennial of all of the books of the Bible. So if you've ever, if you've ever read through the Bible and thought, the reason I don't like the Bible is because it feels like a Hallmark movie. Like there's so much like positivity about this thing. Um, one, I would say that you haven't really read the Bible. Um, and two, then you should read Ecclesiastes because it is the most cynical. It is the most, I don't know, everything kind of doesn't mean anything. And, uh, you know, you watch, you if you like movies that are really dark and really like the point, like the movie's over and, and like half the movie theater hated it because it just ended with nothing and you loved it because like that's been your experience with life and you love love that, then you will love Ecclesiastes. Uh, it is it is fantastic in, in that regard. Um and it's, it's found, its placement is in the Old Testament. So it was one of the ones that grew up kind of like the Jewish people trying to make sense of what it means to be a nation. And it's found in their, uh, in the wisdom genre. So they have like history, they have law, they have poetry, they have all kinds of stuff. And then they have a few wisdom books. These would be books that, you know, this is good stuff for life. Um, Proverbs is found in there. Song of Solomon is found in there. And, uh, and then this is found in there as well. This is a good take on life. It is kind of the uh, yin to the yang of Proverbs. If Proverbs is upbeat and here's what a good life, you know, the prudent will find this and do this and have a great life. Um, this is the opposite kind of reflective sort of uh, or reflexive point of, of that. And in chapter three is a really famous chapter. You've probably heard it read at a funeral or um, even perhaps at a wedding. It's a very versatile verse. Um, but the section starts off with a poetry piece and it says, for there is a time for everything, a time to be born and a time to die, right? That's the whole, um, the whole funeral piece portion. There's a time to sow, there's a time to reap, uh, there's a time to feast, there's a time to fast, uh, there's a time to grow and a time to, to not grow and a uh, time to plant or you know, piece together stones uh, as, as like making sort of a monument of this is something significant in life. Uh, this, there, in other words, I'm getting married today. This is a time to kind of plant some stones. And then there are times to take those monuments down. There are times where that doesn't, that didn't work out and that monument no longer stands for me. So that's, that's a big Ecclesiastes sort of thing. And it flows so well. It reads really well. Uh, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, and a time for that. And then at the very end, you get this like, you get this perspective of um, the seasonality of life, that the ebbs and flows of life 
are real and that this person, this author, who claims to be somebody who has all of the things that you think you need to be happy, he, he would say in other parts, if you thought it was money or influence or a really big house or really hot wife or husband or whatever, or anything that was like, this is gonna be the thing that's finally gonna meet all of my needs and make me happy. This guy would say, I had all of that, still not happy. Just so you know, been there, done that uh, to a greater extent than you could ever get to. And I'm still dealing with the question of what is all of this about anyways, right? Uh, and so when it comes to a wisdom piece, a wisdom book is important because we often approach a wisdom sort of book or we seek out wisdom from people that we respect because we come to them with a conundrum of life. We have a circumstance where we're not exactly sure what we need to do. There are other times we know what we need to do and we just need to kick in the butt to be able to do it. But when it comes to wisdom literature, it's oftentimes I'm seeking out direction because I don't know which way to go. I need you to be able to tell me this. And so when somebody would come to a book like Ecclesiastes and say, I'm just, I'm still, I have a conundrum, I have a circumstance, I don't know what to do. The answer would be, well, what season are you in? There's a season where you should say yes to that. And there's a season when you should say no to that. There's a season in which it makes sense to keep the relationship up and keep it going. And then there's a season where you have to say, there's too much pain and too much hurt. Uh, and I, I need some time. You need to focus on yourself for a bit. And so um, pull yourself away and out of that situation. So time to say yes and a time to say no. And he's not, he's not giving you any answers. It's just an awareness of seasonality ebbs and flows within life. One answer in one season might be the wrong answer in another season. So you need to be aware of that. Like it just, I, he's like, I don't know. I don't know where this at. You're going to have to live with a high level of discernment, something that we'll get back to at the end of this, uh, end of our talk today. So keep that in mind that that's the direction uh, of this. So in, at the end of all of this like poetic, a time for this and a time for that, then it kind of centralizes and summarizes in the passage that we're gonna look at today. It's gonna come from chapter three, verse nine. So one through eight is that big poem. And then chapter, or verse nine, here's where it starts and says this. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And then he goes on and says, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever and nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. God does it so that people will fear him. And then this is the last thing. It's like this almost... One more bit of a poem in, in your Bible at home or whatever, it probably even like the, the grammar or the layout is a little bit different. It goes into that, like the, you can tell what I'm reading here is supposed to be separate from what came before. And here's what it says, the concluding thing. And I put this down as a memory verse because we don't do this enough in society anymore. I mean, you grew up in maybe a, a church or a youth group where like, all right, we've got a memory verse and then you learned it as a kid, but I don't, I don't typically do that for you, but I'm gonna do it for this series. I think this is gonna be important. This is gonna be a verse that we're gonna come back to a couple of times in this series. And uh, in first service today, I had everybody repeat it with me. 
And uh, as soon as it was done, I was like, that felt cultish. So I'm not going to do that for second service today. Um, so you'll just have to like read it under your own breath or do your own thing. Uh, and if you want this uh, and you're not right, you can't write it down fast enough or you didn't bring a pen or whatever the case may be, on our app is all of the verses that we're going to go through as well as anything that came on the screen and, and some extras bonus material in, in light of that. So you can download the app and p- click on the notes piece and find this. But here's what Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 15 says to summarize all of those thoughts. Here we go. Whatever is has already been. And what will be has been before. There is a connection between our past and our present and our future. To say we are unique and this is, this is new. Other, other places he'll say there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that has been has already been before. Everything that will come has already been. It all doesn't matter. It's all like this one weird timeline piece that we think everything, we think we're coming up with a new idea, but it's not really new. It's just a reformulation of something old. And what will be has always been before. And God will call the past to account. Where you find yourself in the present is a product of the past and an anticipation of the future, but they're all somehow related. The time of your life is not just right now. It's, it's, it's encompassing that when it comes to the sense of time, God sees time differently than we do. It would make sense for us as we discern what it means to live in the way of Christ and move forward with this in awareness of time and, uh, and and toil on our life and how it affects our life. So we're going to dive into this verse by verse for a little bit uh, and then go from there. So uh, just to kind of go backwards to this, uh, what do workers gain from their toil? This is a great follow-up. We just finished a series on work in which we said that um, there is some sort of a relation between our faith, or there should be at least, our faith and our our work and the thing that we find ourselves doing um, and the, the, a meaningful connection there, hopefully. And this is the same question that comes up with this. What are the, what, this is the same frustration, I should say, that we said we experience uh, quite often in our workplace um, with our work. We do something and we step back from it and temporarily we say, this is great and I did something. And then over the course of time, we look at it and go, was it really great? Was it really good? I mean, I started this business, but now it's like, doing something different or or it's not even the same thing or I sold it off and now it's, well, I don't know, whatever. I left and now somebody else is taking over and they have different dreams and ideas and they're taking it to the left when I would have gone to the right. What do we gain from all of our toil? What's the purpose of any of it? Is there any good to any sort of work that we do? I have seen God, bur- I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. I've seen the burden, this idea that we are all sort of created to do some sort of work. We said this from the, the last series that before sin entered the garden, before the apple was eaten, before anything went wrong and sideways, man was given a job to do. Men and women were given jobs to do, to cultivate the garden, to have dominion over this place and to do this. Work comes from a sense of being. God is a creative being. He invites us into that creative process as well. And so I've seen this burden that God has given us to do. He's made everything beautiful in its time. In other words, uh, when, we, when we look at it and say, this doesn't feel beautiful, it's because perhaps it's like God is doing at work in doing things that will make it beautiful in time, or we live with that hope. I don't know how this is future, uh, fruitful. I don't know how he's gonna make good of this, but I believe in a God who redeems things, who is on the process of redeeming everything and can make everything um, good. So he's made everything beautiful in its time, this timeline of stuff. Uh, there are moments in time when it makes sense. Verse 11, he continues on. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He set eternity in our hearts, but nobody can fathom, nobody has the perspective that he has. This seems to be some sort of a gift to us. 
He has given us a spirit of eternity in our hearts, which is really fantastic, like a good thing to think about. We, we don't think about it too often, but we have to be reminded of our fragility in, in regards to time. That in, in the Psalms, it would say the life of mortals is like grass. It's here one day and then it's gone. It's like kind of point. And when you talk about like human history, when you took history class in college, they laid out a spectrum of here's what, you know, here's from the beginning of the world to currently where we are and your little spot of time. See this little pinprick of, of thing? That's your lifetime, right? And you go, oh my gosh, it's so limited. It feels like I'm gonna live forever. And yet there are things that come up in life that cause us to go, whether it's an, uh, an accident, somebody we, we, we love who was lost too early, and we go, man, life is fragile. Every once in a while, we get reminded that life is fragile. When I get an opportunity to do a funeral, I don't do a lot of them, but I just did one recently in this room. Uh, I, I'll say something along the lines of, funerals are always good for a couple of things. One, a great excuse to gather together for some people to drive or fly hundreds of miles to be in the room with somebody to share stories and to remember fondly uh, that person who is no longer with us. And then two, uh, a good reminder for us of the fragility of life that you've walked out of funerals before and you thought, see, that's kind of how I want my story to be. Or, or perhaps me, that, that's not what I want my story to be. Did you hear them trying to think of creative things to say, what'd you like about Frank? And everybody's like, oh man, um, God. And you're like, I don't want that, right? I want when that mic, when that open mic is passed around, I want it to be like, hey, we got to shut this off because it's been two hours, everyone. Thank you for all having nice things to say about him. But you know, I, it's, it's, it's one of those deals. In that moment, we are reminded of kind of the bigger picture of, of life. We're reminded that life is temporary, it's temporal, uh, and we have a small window of opportunity to kind of make things work. And, and that's good, but what's beautiful about life is you probably, those are the exceptions to the rule. When we get up in the morning, it's not like, you're, you don't have a calendar, probably, you probably don't have a calendar going one less day to live, right? That's a very depressing way to do it. The gift that God has given into our hearts is that oftentimes we wake up and go, it's another beautiful day in the Tri-Cities in October. Uh, we feel like we're gonna live forever. We feel like we're always gonna be this age. We're always gonna be this healthy. We're always gonna, that is a gift that, the, that the, Ecclesi the author of Ecclesiastes says has been given to us that in spite of our fragility, we often live with an unawareness of it because the gift of eternal life has been imprinted onto our, on our hearts. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. Meaning we are oftentimes unaware of all of the things that he has done to provide for us. And for those of you with kids, you know this. You know the unappreciative nature of kids who just, what do they think? The dishes just wash themselves? These, this lawn, we have elves that come in and fold their laundry and make it into their place. Like we have so many kids who are unaware of all of the things as parents that we do for them. And they won't realize it until they have their own kids. And then they come to you over coffee while you're sipping coffee somewhere. And they go, man, thanks mom or dad for being such a great parent. And, and I didn't realize how much. And you just go and you sip and you go, you're right. And you go, oh, you say things like, yeah, you were a great kid. And then, you know, in the, mind, in the back of your mind going, I mean, there were things though, right? I mean, like, 
there were definitely hard times in, in that way. We are often, in that small picture, we are often unaware of all of the things a parent has to do or does without any sort of appreciation or awareness. And in that limited scope, this author is saying, imagine the perspective of what God has done to kind of bring us to where we are today. Like that's his thing. So it is positive. It's not like he's completely depressed and maniacal about all of this. He has positive things to say about this, but he he places it in good perspective for us. Like we could never even know the depths uh, that which he does this. All right, verse 12, then he continues on. I know that there's nothing uh, better for people than to be satisfied or to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of their toil. This is a gift of God. The gift of God that you have to live with a sense of eat, drink, and be merry, uh, and, and to leave off that for tomorrow we die, but just to like enjoy life, to be able to go through this, to be able to do projects, step away and be like, I did this, I functioned in this. This is the teacher's counsel here is provocative, even kind of table turning. Lean into your creaturehood. You are created, you are a creature, you are something, you exist in time. And this time thing has been a gift to you. It's been a gift to me to make the most of it. And we get to go and do things that bring us joy, that bring us happiness, that we get to toil away. And sometimes our toil feels fruitless, but sometimes it feels like I was, I'm here for a purpose and I'm engaging in my purpose and I'm digging into my uh, toil. These are and We find gifts along the way that we never even imagine. We go into things being, this is going to suck. And then it turns out great, right? I mean, this is like pumpkin carving season. You know what I mean? And this is, uh, this is one of those things every year, I dread until I'm doing it. Have you noticed that too? You're like, I don't wanna do this. It's gonna be, it's gonna be messy. The kids bring me, they, do they do this to you? They bring you designs that are like, how am I supposed, like carve this, the Mona Lisa into a pumpkin? Like, I don't know what kind of an artistic dad you think I am. I'm gonna, I can do circles and I can do triangles and, uh, and squares are, are pretty good too. Like there's, but like, I'm trying to temper their expectations and then you get going with it. And then, and then you, you just, you know, here, here's the final product and it's, it's terrible and you just can't wait till next year, right? And that's, that's, and it gets brought up and you're just like, I'm dreading this. And then yet, even when you're in the midst of it, the gift of finding joy in that is kind of what he's talking about in this way. <clears throat> All of these joys are then also attended by loss. To be a creature is to be passing away amid things that are passing away. And he reminds us of this. He knows this. He goes, even in those moments when you find yourself, I didn't, I wasn't expecting joy. I found joy. He's like, it's still ultimately though all meaningless. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. Whatever is has already been. Whatever is or is to come has been before and God will call the past to an account. There isn't a sense in which the author of Ecclesiastes is inviting us to see ourselves as an existent within time. That even Christianity itself is a product of, is a religion of time in, in terms of, we know at the fullness of time, God sent his son to die on the cross at just the right time, right? In history, in time, we live on this side of that experience, trying to make sense of that and trying to live into what that means for us. So we are products of time. And so as created beings with our time together, how does this affect us on Monday? If, if this is true and this is a passage that we're gonna reflect on and, and, and whatever, you know, Brent, what, what are the, give me some handles. What do I do with this? What's the, what's the point of this? All right, two things. If you're taking notes, as created beings, we are all, one, indebted to a past and two, oriented towards the future. Every one of us indebted to some sort of a past 
And because the future is to come has already been, we are oriented towards some sort of a future based on kind of where we've been and where we are currently. To be is to have been and to have is to have been bumped up, up against others who rub off on us. They leave marks that we might not always see. More than marks, they leave dents and deposits, kind of like the car that you are currently driving. When you got it, it was brand new, no scrapes, no dents, no nothing. Every once in a while, something happens, a door, a ding, a cart, a something hits, scrapes, the kids rub along, the, you know, the backpacks along the side of this thing or, or the bikes or whatever, and you just your car accumulates stuff. It just does, and you carry that with you wherever you go. Some of it you can point to and be like, I remember the day that that happened. We had words. And then some of it, you just walked out one day, and it's there, and you're like, where did that come from? How long has that been there? I don't even know. So there are things that we're aware of and things that we're not even aware of as it relates to life, and this is true for our life as well. There are friends who have come alongside you over the years and bumped you a little bit in certain ways, said things, left some remarks, left some thoughts. Some of it I'm aware of, some of it I'm not aware of. Some of them have been deep reservoirs, uh, dig wells deep into your life that like provide you with sustenance and, and refreshing. And like that relationship, I haven't seen that person in years. And yet there's such a deep connection or what they said and did in my life was so meaningful, it resonates with me. And, 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 um, and I'm a better person long-term uh, before it. We all have some sort of a, some kind of a buried history in, in, in things. We're coming into it not as a clean slate, but as somebody who has been influenced, both good and bad. And if this sounds like you're on a couch in a psychotherapist's office, I understand, but this is how we see things. This is how this is relates to the goodness and the openness and the awareness that we have. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I took our kids to Florida and we did uh, we did the whole Disney and uh, Universal thing. I, and I've never been like a Harry Potter. I didn't read the books. It was after my time and never read the books and never really watched the movies. But all of a sudden the kids wanted to go to Harry Potter land. We're like, we're going to take them. We're already here, right? And, uh, and you go in and, and you walk into this immersive sort of experience. And I was blown away. I was like, I, this is amazing. It was really, really incredible. It felt like you were in a completely different world. I appreciated it. However, I did not have the backdrop of all of the, I didn't understand there's a voice in the bathroom. I'm not a, like a, I don't know how that all works, but she's like talking and I'm like, what is happening here? This is super creepy, Right. And apparently that's part of the, the book. And you guys are laughing because you, you've read the books. If you're laughing, you've read the books or you're like, that's really creepy too, right? I get it. That was kind of where I was at. Like I didn't fully appreciate all of the things. I fully appreciated Butterbeer. It was fantastic. But other than that, I would have appreciated it more had I accumulated a little bit of knowledge and pieces going into that, then, then it would have made that more ex more uh, of an experience than it, what it currently was. And yet it still was something. I carried nothing in or, you know, the absence of things with me. So the absence of, of something can affect us or the experience of something can affect us. There was a, a book that came out a few years ago uh, called The Things They Carried. And it was a book of uh, post-Vietnam uh, War vets coming home and, uh, and their experience of what they saw, how they experienced it, and what they have now with them. Uh, and one of the quotes from it is, they carried all that they could bear and then some, including an awe for the terrible power of the things that they carried. That when you come home from an experience like war, it's not just like, you don't just get to check your gear back into inventory and leave it there or check your thoughts or your memories into there. Like you come back shaped differently and trying to, as you know, we're trying to, as a, as a nation, take care of those men and women who sacrificed for our safety and security and 
You know, like how do we take care of them? That's a lot different than, than this. We're still navigating with this kind of stuff, right? Some of the things I carry means that I walk through the world with a, a, a limp. Um, the, the damage that has been done in that relationship means I don't walk the same. Like there's a noticeable something about my behavior that, um, that, that feels uh, a little off and, and it doesn't... Um, it doesn't translate to uh, health or, or an openness. I'm, I'm, I'm resistant to, uh, you know, diving into relationships. I'm, I'm to, into trust. I've been hurt too many times. This divorce really caught up with me and it's a big dent in my life. And I have now a hard time trusting uh, anybody uh, into this and in, in inviting them into that kind of a vulnerability uh, within a relationship. So I, I hold it a hard, at an arm's distance. I really like you, but I can't get there. Um, and it's because of hurt, not because of you, but because of me, because I have this. And some of that is I'm aware of it. Some of it I'm not even aware of. Again, we don't recognize how much we are the products of a past, leading to a sense of naiveness about our present things. And we do this in a lot of different ways. And one of the, the reasons that it affects us big time is because, uh, or the, and, and, and I want to, this is what I want to do. I want to talk about, we know that that's true. We know that we walk sometimes with a limp, but what we fail to often recognize is are the invisible things that are blind to us about the dents and the scrapes and the things that we've accumulated that we don't even see and that we cannot identify. And we do this individually. We do this corporately. We've done this as a nation. Um, we, we do this because um, uh, even when it comes to kind of memory, uh, we, we, have a, we have a troubled memory. We have a, uh, a short, a, a loss in terms of our memory. We don't remember well. When it comes to nostalgia, sometimes we remember only the good things of something. We don't remember the bad things of something. One of the quotes that I read this week, so much of the trouble of this world is caused by memories for we only remember half of them. If you've ever had a conversation with your dad now that you're an adult or mom, or, and they go, we were pre- it was a pretty good household, right? I, did, I, I, I treated you well. And you're smiling, you're going, do you not remember those things that you said to me? Do you remember, remember this event? Do you not remember? I mean, like, I don't want to bring it up now because it's Christmas and we're like all around the dinner table. Doesn't feel like the right time, but you were a turd. You were a total jerk. And, and, but you smile and you laugh and you go, of course, it was fantastic. It was great, right? I mean, like, there's like a blindness to some of this. We're kind of blind to sometimes the things that we're short. And as a, as a nation, we're, we're in this season where we have been dealing with some of the blindness of our past, right? Uh, and, and we have been kind of trying to navigate wh- where it is that we came from, what, why we believe some things that we no longer believe or, and we don't even realize how bad this is or what it was. There's an example that, that came up recently. Uh, there's a, a place called Stone Mountain in Georgia. I don't know if you've ever heard of Stone Mountain National Park or whatever, it's not a national park, but it's a, it, it is a park with, with a monument on it. It was the Rushmore before Mount Rushmore. In fact, a lot of the people that had uh, stuff in this went on to then do Mount Rushmore, but in the side of a mountain is pictured three heroes from the Civil War, or what they would, at their time, the lost cause. Let's always remember uh, General uh, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and uh, Stonewall Jackson. And, and, it, and it's in Georgia at the epicenter of, of, of some of the heated stuff going on in the South and in very much a difficult time. And the problem that we have is, uh, as a nation, we've recognized uh, that that is a dark spot on our history that we need to work through. And yet, how do we tear this down? This is in the side of, it's not a a, a tower. It's not a, a a monument, a statue that we can pull down and do whatever. It's like 
in the side of a mountain. So the discussion came up. This was uh, pictured uh, and a site on top of this mountain is kind of a sacred site for a lot of the white supremacy stuff in our nation. And as, as recently as 2017, the Ku Klux Klan tried to uh, apply for a permit to be able to do a, a cross burning at the top of this. And that's, guys, that's a couple of years ago. That's crazy, right? And so this is a difficult spot. And, and so the discussion has been, what do we do with this? We have this memory of, uh, there are people within our nation who have a memory that is, uh, that has a side of, it's very one-sided. We only, we remember half of, uh, we only remember the good half of, of, of this, right? Uh, and, and so the discussion came up, do we, do we demolish this? Do we ruin it? Do we, what's the, what's the status for something like this? And uh, <clears throat> one of the, uh, a guy named uh, A.E. Stallings, who was a poet, he grew up in the shadow of this and he, uh, talked about this and, and wrote some poetry about this. Why do we have such rendi- past, uh, what do we have, what do we do when we have renditions of the past that loom above us taunting those oppressed by this half of memory? He wrote about how the sculptor of this wanted to create a memorial that will stand through eternity. So he proposed ideas for what do we do in response to this? Tear this down, start over, whatever. And his kind of takeaway I thought was kind of brilliant. We should allow growth to overtake the sculptures many clefts and crinkles as they naturally collect organic material and allow moss to, in, uh, to obscure its details. We should blast it with soil to encourage such growth and consider this new camouflage as a deliberate creative act to let vegetation weather a mountain into a ruin and let a ruin grow back into a mountain. To let vegetation weather a mountain into a ruin to let a ruin grow back into a mountain. In other words, if we just like let this thing go. And, that, and, and in fact, put soil in places where nature itself can eat away at this thing and disfigure it in a way that it's unrecognizable, unkempt, or it looks like kind of nature has taken its course on this. And it's not that we, uh, it's, it's, it's a way of saying, this was a broken way of seeing things. And we, we can allow the time to, to shape us in a better version of this. The, the ruined monument is a better act of remembering than obliteration. So that when we see this, we go, that's broken. That's not what to do. And, and corporately, we, we know that, you know, we've heard America has a, 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 you know, must reckon with its past. And that's true. And I think we need to do that as a nation, but let's bring this down to the individual level for us. Reckoning and hope scale both to soul and society that as much as we need to do this as a nation, we have some of that in us too, guys. And, and my role here is to guide us into uh, looking at the way of Jesus and our current way of doing things and kind of seeing how these things can mix and when there's conflict and when there's brokenness, walking through why the way of Jesus is better than the brokenness that we do this. Because we're blind to this. We carry with us things that are, that, uh, that are causing us pain and shortcomings and, 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 and things about us that, that are not right and are not good. And we don't, sometimes we're aware of it. Sometimes we're not even aware of it. That's the problem. So how do we address what we know to be a blind spot? How do we do this? Why couldn't we know in the moment? Why, why what, what's the problem with, with, with this? There's a, um, a quote by a German philosopher named Hegel who uh, had a saying. It's a pretty popular saying, but it says, um, the owl of Minerva begins its flight only with the onset of dusk, which that doesn't mean anything to you right now because it didn't even mean anything to me. You're smarter than me, so maybe it did mean something to you. But here's what he's saying. Owl, what's an owl? It's a symbol of wisdom. It's why Gisa chose it as their like logo for their bank, right? You're wise if you bank here. Ah, oh, we get you, Gisa. Okay, here we go. Uh, 
the owl of Minerva. Minerva was the Roman goddess likened to the Greek goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom. So in other words, wisdom upon wisdom begins its flight or takes flight only with the onset of dusk. Only when things are over will we truly be like, oh, that's what we should have done. Only after you get through something will it become so clear. Or a more American way of saying it is hindsight is 2020, right? But we wish we could have this wisdom. If I would have known, I would have been able to fix this. And so we, we chase after this. And here's what he's saying. You can chase after wisdom now, but there is in a sense in which this, is, this only happens afterwards. And it always works like this. That if we sit here and wait for wisdom to go through things, we'll never, we'll never truly get there. What should I do, Lady Wisdom? How should I go? Which path should I take? Which direction should I go? It kind of depends on which season you're in. Well, which, you know, I'm trying to decide, I'm trying to do this. And here's the thing. He's trying to say this. You'll never get it fully right. That does not excuse you from chasing after discernment. But what it should do is bring with you a high level of vulnerability and humility about where I am and how smart I am in life. That when I approach things, I go, I've got a way and a direction. I think that I want to go and I think I want to do this. And I think this is the right thing for me. But I need to realize and recognize I am a bit broken. I've got things about me I know are broken. I've got things about me I don't even know about that are broken, that are shaping me, that I carry with me, that I, that I bring into every relationship, that I bring into every marriage that I brought. There are things about my childhood that I'm bringing into my parenting. I think I'm doing pretty good as a parent, but I don't even know that I'm broken in that way. So therefore, and I, and I know that I'm not gonna know it until afterwards. I, I, I can't be like, well, I'm gonna read all the books. I'm gonna get all the things. I'm, uh, that's fine. It's great, but... There's a sense in which humility that we have to approach this with, a, I, I, I'm a product of my past. I don't even know exactly what it is that's broken with me. So therefore, then what do I do? Am I completely lost? No, again, it, it, it doesn't excuse us or preclude us from seeking out discernment that becomes the reason why we should continue to seek, uh, search for discernment. Discernment's not a matter of explaining history, but looking to forge forms of life in concert with what we would call the Spirit's unfolding of redemption in time. What we see Jesus with his disciples is meeting with them going, I've been here to guide you. We've, I've led you. I've showed you the way. I've said, here's where we're going to go. Here's what we're going to do. I've sent you out. I've sent you out on missions to say, go and preach and talk about this and cast out demons and do this, provide for healing. Now you're coming back to me. And, here's, and then he goes with them. At one point he goes, I'm about to leave you, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm leaving you my spirit. I'm leaving something behind to guide you into all truth that the role of the spirit is to guide you into all truth. That the, the way of Jesus says he provided an example, a model for us to follow. And then when it comes to discernment about when it's unclear about what that ex exactly looks like, that he is at work in doing the redeeming part of nature and he invites us into that process with him. If we will pause and wait and listen with discernment about what the spirit is guiding us into. And it comes with the belief too that God is already on the move, that he's not waiting for us to do things. There is a, uh, there's a, a, a part of the story of the Chronicles of Narnia when Lewis writes these children's books, but he writes it kind of like knowing that parents are gonna read them too, like peeking over their shoulder. So there's some really deep thoughts in there. They're, they read really well for kids, but then if you're an adult reading it to your kids, you're always like, oh my gosh, there's some conviction there. I need to do some stuff. And one of those things 
um, he talks about is in, in the character that they liken to, he's the archetype of Christ is Aslan the lion, right? And the animals are talking animals, because uh, again, it's a kid's book. And they talk about how Aslan's on the move. Aslan is on the move. He's already doing this. He's already a part of the, all of this stuff that we are just waking up to. He's already been behind the scenes. He's not waiting for us. He's not doing this in response to us. He's already on it. The invitation is to come and be a part of it. And in the same way, this is the approach that we have. We are creatures of time. We carry with us things that we know and we don't know, which should lead to a sense of, of vulnerability and humility and a sense of now I'm crying out for discernment. I want to know which way to go and what I'm supposed to do. Good thing for us, God is already on the move. He's already in the redemptive work of creation, bringing creation back into line, back into a fullness. We know that we anticipate a day when all things are made right, when evil is no longer, there are no more tears, there are no more this, there is no, there is no way, we're, way to go. It's, it's just right here. We anticipate that and he's already on the move and he's inviting us into it, even in spite of our brokenness and our shortcomings, because that's all we have to offer anyways. That's all we ever are uh, anyways. And so that's where we find ourselves. The time of your life is that we are creatures of time. May we live with the understanding of our brokenness in the way that we know and the way that we don't know. And may we lean heavily, heavily into his spirit for discernment about where to go from here. That's where I want to start the conversation. We'll continue it next week, part two of the time of your life. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would let that be real for us today, that we would see through examples of our, of our nation doing a reckoning, and then that we would say, I kind of, I need to do a reckoning too, man. I, I, I've got things, I've got baggage I don't even know of. And, and some of that's going to, can come out through conversations with our spouses and our family members. Some of it is maybe a professional counselor or a friend or a trusted advisor or whatever. Uh, but we're always at work. We're always shaping ourselves. We're always realizing, you know, who and where we come from. Like, what time is it for us? Uh, may we may we respond with clarity about what season that we're in, uh, and to know which way to go, and to lean uh, consistently uh, in the direction of your Spirit as it guides us into all truth. May. May that promise of Jesus be true in our life. Give us a wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. It occurs to you something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.